you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed. On today's episode, we explore how anti-Black racism affects the mental health of Black youth in our province. We'll be talking with Dr. Bukala Salami. Dr. Salami is an associate professor in the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Alberta, and she'll be telling us about her research project to promote the mental health of African, Black, and Caribbean youth in Alberta. And we speak with Noreen Sabanda. She's the executive director at Alberta Black Therapist Network and is a registered provincial psychologist. She helps us better understand some context of the mental health access for the Black community, a community full of diverse cultures and histories. Both guests share a lot of information that is backed by quite a bit of research, and we'll include links to a few articles and papers in our show notes if you would like to nerd out as you listen. Also, just a heads up, listeners, in this episode, we speak candidly about racism. We'll be sharing examples from youth who've experienced racism and how that has affected them. One of the examples contains explicit and offensive language. So if you are sensitive to this language or uncomfortable hearing how racism is experienced, please proceed with caution. Okay, let's get into the story. In March 2020, Dr. Bukala Salami and her research team published their findings about the mental health of African, Black, and Caribbean youth in Alberta. After months of speaking directly with youth about their experiences and feelings about mental health, it became clear that one of the key factors impacting their mental health is racism and discrimination. In September of 2020, the Public Health Agency of Canada also released a report called Social Determinants and Inequalities in Health for Black Canadians, a snapshot. This snapshot also identifies anti-Black racism as a determinant of health, both physical and mental. To quote from that report, Discrimination against Black people is deeply entrenched and normalized in Canadian institutions, policies, and practices, and is often invisible to those who do not feel its effects. This form of discrimination has a long history, uniquely rooted in European colonization of Africa and the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. Slavery was legal in Canada until 1834. Almost two centuries later, racist ideologies established during these periods in history continue to drive processes of stigma and discrimination. End quote. Today, we're diving into why acknowledging the impact of anti-Black racism is so important for mental health. To get started, let's meet Noreen Sabanda. My name is Noreen Sibanda. I'm a registered provisional psychologist and the executive director of the Alberta Black Therapist Network. I sat down with Noreen to learn about why having a network of Black therapists is so important. And this is a network of um, therapists that came together to say, we need to serve our community better, and it's going to take us being the ones that are in the driving force and coming from an anti-racist and anti-oppressive lens to offer mental health supports to the community. So mental health within the Black community is something that's quite stigmatized, and often people have to suffer in isolation. And part of that is the barriers to accessing supports to mental health. 
first being the cost and then secondly the the resources that are out there are they actually made and tailored for someone like me do they understand my lived experiences and am i going to be talking to someone that understands my experience one of my colleagues that i work closely with at africa center had to spend about 15 minutes explaining why a certain dish was part of dinner and the significance and that's a lot of time in therapy to spend trying to explain to someone so that they can understand why that was so significant for her. This reminded me of microaggressions. We'll hear more about those when we speak to Bukala, but I asked Noreen if she could expand on that idea here. Yeah, so similar to the stigma, where it's social stigma, when we're looking at microaggressions, most likely it becomes internalized stigma because it almost feels like, why do you have to feel this way? And there's an invalidation of the experiences that you have. So it becomes, it's a me problem when in reality, it's something that most people experience or most people have come across. And if those experiences are not being validated, people are further traumatized by even trying to talk or seek any supports that are out there. So in a way, it becomes a little bit of a a catch-22. You feel these things and you go for help, but the help isn't helping because... It's not um, tailored to your experiences then. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing wrong with accessing supports from people from different cultures. And all therapists are beautifully trained, one. And secondly, they do an amazing job with the work that they do, creating those safe spaces for people to come to. But I think what makes a difference is recognizing the history of mental health or even any health supports within the Black community. It is a lack of trust. So why would I even go and seek out these supports if I feel like I'm going to further ostracize my experience or I might be subjected to experiences that are not pleasant? There's a lot of uh, within the medical history where Black people were subjected to well, illegal experiments. And there comes therapy, which is something that's supposed to be, well, (laughs) intimate and a vulnerable space. And if I can't feel like I can trust that that space is going to give me what I need, then I don't put in as much as I actually am going to get out. Unbelievable. Yeah, I I can understand that that the safety portion is a big part of it. Now, you mentioned there's some history there. Can you talk a little bit about how some of the history in Canada in terms of Black mental health, how we've gotten to where we are today, where there is such a a resource as a therapy network? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the stats are clear. One in five Canadians will experience a mental health illness at some point in their life. And we have to distinguish between mental health and mental illness and health being something that we all have. And we all take care of our mental health on a daily basis by engaging in a few things to ensure that we feel safe, we feel good, and we maintain our ability to deal with life stresses. And mental illness is really disrupting that ability to, well, deal with life and be able to participate fully. And the history also says that uh, a Black individual is more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And that touches a big part on the cultural aspect. Most African cultures, part of the culture is you can talk to the dead or you can talk to people that are not 
visible to other people. And according to the DSM, that is a delusion and illusion. Therefore, you qualify as someone with schizophrenia. And that has a very big impact, not only on the individual, but also on the community as well. And Black people are less likely to be diagnosed with mood disorders because, well, you can snap out of it, pray about it, right? So the way we talk about mental health, even within the community, doesn't allow for that those services to be openly accessed either. I I find that very interesting that people are being diagnosed with symptoms of things that, that are actually cultural. Let's talk a little bit about the, the R word, racism. Um, how does this play into the inability for Black members of the community to seek mental health? I think the inequality is already embedded in so many of the systems, right? So we're looking, uh, the Black community is more likely to be in poverty. They are more likely to be incarcerated. And that in itself already tells us what happens to the individuals that are family members of those that are incarcerated. And also, if you're in poverty, you're more likely to be, well, surviving instead of thriving, right? So you're really looking to meeting those basic needs instead of looking at taking care of your mental health. I mentioned that mental health is something that we all have and we're continually working on improving it. And if my biggest need is shelter, am I taking care of my mental health? Probably not, right? And I'm not actively even thinking about it. Although the first thing or the biggest thing we have is our heads. It is our mental states right? So we can take care of the physical and everything else by eating and exercising. But if our minds are not taken care of, we haven't really done the big work. And when we talk about the Black community, we are very much aware that we're talking about newcomers or immigrants at some point. It could be a first generation, second generation, or even three or four generations down the line, if the trauma of those experiences haven't been processed, those still get carried on. We know from the studies with the First Nations that it takes seven generations to start healing the trauma. And we're talking first or second generation here. We're really in the midst of it. We're really just trying to get through it as it is at the moment. So we have quite a treacherous landscape of racism with deep historical roots. Trauma, discrimination, and cultural expectations are passed down to each generation, even as the landscape shifts from one generation to the next. Black youth must navigate this complexity. And again, there's much diversity within this demographic. To quote from the Public Health Agency of Canada's report, The Black population in Canada is diverse, and different kinds of discrimination intersect to shape the experiences of individuals and groups with different histories and identities. Black people's lives are shaped by their multiple and overlapping identities, including age, gender, sexual orientation, ability, religion, immigration status, country of origin, socioeconomic status, and racialized identity, end quote. When it comes to mental health, Black youth have a lot to shoulder, and yet there has not been much research about this particular issue. And that's why Dr. Buko Salami... I am Bukola Salami. I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Nursing, University of Alberta. Decided to do a research project that engaged African, Black, and Caribbean youth about their mental health. The story actually um, dates back to when I was on the board of directors of Africa Center. And um, at that time, I had um, you know, gotten to realize as a board member that some of the youths were struggling 
to be able to actually um, find resources that would contribute to improving their status. So I met with um, a group of youths of um, Africa Center, the Year Come Up group, and um, asked them, how can I be of help in terms of improving their status? And they identified that the most important thing that I could help them with was um, complete a research study that will address their mental health status. So the research question actually came from the youth and they were very clear from the get-go that they wanted a research project that is participatory, that they wanted a research project that would also um, involve an intersectionality approach um, that would consider issues related to race and have an anti a strong anti-racist stance. So that's how I got myself involved in working with youths about um, Black mental health. Bukala and her team conducted interviews with 30 Black youths. In addition, they spoke with 99 African, Black, and Caribbean youth through conversation cafes. And they found that this demographic faces unique challenges when it comes to mental health. I think the main um, reason why the mental health of Black people may be fundamentally different from uh, mental health of everyone else is really um, the intersecting influences of diverse social determinants of health. And when you look at the root causes of some of those differences in diverse social determinants of health, the main root cause is anti-Black racism that people experience. So before we didn't used to have racism as a um, social determinant of health, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada. Over the last seven years, that has changed to identifying race and racism as an important social determinant of health. So Black youth experience racism, and this contributes to your mental health directly, but also indirectly in terms of we know that, for example, people with low income are more likely to suffer from poor health. And we know that Black populations are more likely to um, be low income. And we know that some of the reasons for Black population being low income is, for example, racism in the system in terms of hiring practices. So um, the influence of racism and race on mental health is both direct and also the indirect pathways to, for example, living in a poorer social condition and um, income status. So it is very much systemic in Canada. Can you um, give an example of something that might be a barrier that people may not realize is a barrier? Okay. So first, if we have to talk about the historical piece about racism in Canada, people often imagine that racism in Canada is something that, you know, Canadians are the best and you know, racism is something that happens in the U.S., and slavery was something that happened in the U.S. No, we also had slavery in Canada. And it's not only Black people that we are slaves. We had a lot of Indigenous people in Canada that we are slaves. And we know that there's historical influences of how those threats get passed down generations. And some of the people that I interviewed also talked about the mental health conditions that they experience, it's not just about what is happening here. It's also about what the appearance of experience in terms of the traumas, either traumas from refugee status, traumas from racism in Canada, that the appearance of experience in Canada. I um, posted a piece on um, Edmonton Journal about addressing Black income inequality. And one comment that I had is, it's 2016 now, I'm in 2018 or 20 now, and there's no racism in Canada. And I got an email um, saying that I should um, 
like a lot of um, abusive words in the email. Um, and that's just for me saying that we need to address Black people's mental health. Um, and, um, you know, I, I shouldn't say the words that I was called, but I was called um, a Nigerian scammer. But, you know, that's one of the ways that people actually experience racism in Canada. And sometimes, you know, racist experience, there are sometimes influences too of unconscious biases that you know, some people are not aware and never really, really reflect on their personalities and stance, be able to recognize how um, the unconscious bias plays out. When you aren't the one who experiences the racism, it can be difficult to see it in action, especially if you've been taught that racism is an issue of the past or is no longer a problem in your community. If you are someone who thinks that racism doesn't exist in Alberta, realizing how it plays out in the daily lives of racialized people can be wildly uncomfortable. Bukula shared some examples of how the youth she spoke with experience racism today. She also shared audio from some of her interviews, which you'll hear. We've altered the voices of the youth to ensure their anonymity. You know, some of my youths talk, for example, about, you know, the perception or the ideas that, you know, Black people, their uh, features have to be changed. And this oftentimes becomes internalized among youths in terms of, you know, there was one youth that talked about, you know, she hated herself just because of some of the racist experiences. I grew up with so much internalized anti-blackness. Kind of hated myself. I wanted to wait so bad. I wanted to have straight hair. I wanted to have lighter skin. You know, I wanted swollen lips. There was another youth during the interview that talked to me about the fact that she was crossing the road and, um, you know, some people threw a sloppy at her and called her a nigger. And said, Nigga, leave the road. Um, there was another youth during our interview that talked about um, you know, a mom going into a bank and a woman, um, and a mom is um a white, and you know, a mom is you know, she is black, so she's um, half white, half black. And a mom was told that she's dirty for uh, marrying a black person. So, you know, those are some of the racist experiences that some of our participants talked about that. You know, some of these experiences, it really, really affects youths, not just in the den, but also sometimes it becomes internalized and and impacts and affects their mental health. There's also issues that youths face, for example, when they go to practitioners. So when they go to mental health practitioners to receive mental health services, a lot of times, um, no, the practitioners are not Black. And some of the youths will talk about well, I'm experiencing mental health problem. Well, because those people um, that they're receiving services from have not experienced racism, when you talk about, I'm experiencing mental health problem, it's, it's because of racism. Here's another audio clip of a youth talking about how some therapists overlook racism. Like, whatever I'm going through, a lot of it will probably have something to do with my identity and like my life as a black woman, um, as an immigrant, you know, as an African woman. And I don't want, I never want to have, like, feel like my experiences are, one, not valid, or, like, they don't relate to what I'm talking about, you know, because, like, a lot of times we go through things, and in the back of our heads, we know this happened because I'm black, or it happened because I'm a woman, mm-hmm. but other people might not, they might not get it, and I don't want you to feel like, I, I, would, I would never want to feel like, I'm telling my therapist this, and he's like, um, maybe I'll get it in this way, because mm-hmm. it can't, it's not because you're a black woman. <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> that last bit was hard to hear, but the youth says, I'm not doing this. You need to understand my life. The racism aspect tends to be brushed 
aside because the practitioners are not skilled or experienced at sort of dealing with it. And we also know from the news, I mean, there was a news about the indigenous woman and the experience of racism. So we know even within the healthcare sector that people often experience racism even within the health sector uh, when, when they try to access healthcare. There's just one more thing I want to talk about before we get to, the, you know, to, to what can be done is um, I read in the report a lot about microaggressions, and I'm sure we're all guilty of that. Can you give some examples of things that happen in day to day life that we don't even realize that we're doing? So black people often are, uh, experience everyday, just everyday indignities that are really based on their personality or their race. And you know, one of the experiences of that is um Maybe you you meet a um, a black person and the person is, for example, a, a doctor, and you just automatically you know think that oh you know you must be very very smart or you know um, you know how did you get here, <laughs> right? And I remember when I was um, a practitioner, you know, I used to always be under the garbage because you know I am a nurse, I'm black, and I'm supposed to be a cleaner. <laughs> not a nurse. So, I mean, those are some of the indignities that Black people experience every time. And one of the most common one is, um, you know, hair, you know, I mean, the hair on your head. And, um, you know, some of the comments that may come with that in terms of, oh, is your hair real? And those are some things that just things that pulls you down and are not really meant to to lift you up based on the comments. And, and in some way over time, those can contribute to your mental health status. Experiencing racism is only part of the story when it comes to mental health for Black youth. Because racism is so entrenched in our culture and in our systems, it also impacts how marginalized people can even access mental health supports. So some of the barriers to receiving mental health is, um, one is um, the cost of mental health services. Because, um, of course, um, African, Black, and Caribbean youths, on average, tend to be um, lower income than others. And, you know, for example, if you need psychological counseling services, you may have to provide $200. And, and some of the youths also talked about the lack of uh, representation. You know, you tell your counselor you're experiencing racism, and they just move over to a different topic, just because you're not comfortable dealing with the idea. And many of our youths um, were in Edmonton. They talked about when you look at the geographical layout of where mental health services is located, where the best ones are located, that they tend not to be located in places that are friendly towards Black people. So they tend to, for example, be located in white neighborhoods. There's also the issue of um, especially African youths. They come from a co um, community of collectivist community. And when you start integrating into Canada, there's this culture of independence. You have to be independent. And the more focus on you have to be independent, the more, um, because we know that community belonging and community support contributes to mental health. And there's also the issue, not just with Black people, but generally about stigma and the judgmentalism related to mental health. Some of the youths also talked about intergenerational gaps. So some parents experience or intergenerational challenges. Some parents have experienced very, very bad trauma in the past war trauma and also racism trauma um, that they experienced in the past. And you know, when the youth start talking about, I have a mental health problem and it's like, can I tell you how much you know, I have experienced in the past compared to what you've experienced? It's not that the youths have not experienced, they've experienced a whole lot, 
but it's because historically their parents have experienced just so much that then that creates a barrier in terms of addressing a mental health problem. And I think um, the youth also talked about this whole perception sometimes that Black people are supposed to be strong. And there's a perception that you're Black, you're supposed to be strong, you're not supposed to have mental... So so the image of you know, strong Black women sort of clouds you know, everything else and that makes it really difficult in terms of um, addressing... Um, a mental health um, issue. And then there's also lack of knowledge by some in terms of what is mental health, how to address it. This idea of having to be strong and resilient also leaks up with another cultural expectation that arose from the project. Many youth feel that they need to be available to support others within their community. So they must be strong for themselves and for others. Here's another clip from one of the interviews describing the struggle in balancing both their own mental health and their sister's. But it's like, how do you balance your own mental health and like you knowing that like your sister almost had a mental breakdown? It's like you don't want that to happen to her again. So it's like you have to be there for her too. So um, it's like just juggling both, and then it's like no one knows that I'm going through this. The research project identifies several recommendations for how to better serve the mental health of African, Black, and Caribbean youth in Alberta. I asked Bukala to share some of the recommendations and invited her to share suggestions of what we as individuals can do. There are a few ways that we can change it. There are direct ways that we can change. So, for example, um, addressing you know, geographical locations, for example, of Black people's mental health. I know when I was in Toronto, for example, there was uh, an immigrant women's shelter, um, immigrant women um, support um, organization that was located in a mall. Because, of course, that makes it very, very easily accessible and you can go and report domestic violence to the mall and your partner still thinks that you're still shopping, right? So I'm not saying that that is the same case as Black people or Black youth, but I'm saying, is there a way where we can actually situate mental health um, services within spaces that are for Black people or Black youth? Um, in Canada, such as, you know, is there a mall that Black youth usually go to or an event that they usually go to that we can situate it in? The other thing is representation of Black people. So, for example, increasing the representation of Black health service providers in Canada. And we have, you know, some um, strategies. So, for example, we have the Alberta Black Therapies Network that is trying to address that to ensure culturally um, sensitive care. There's also the issue about addressing um, the social determinant of health. So the intersecting influences of um, racism and the intersecting influences with income, for example. So anti-Black racism is real in Canada. And how can we address this? I think first is a lot of times we focus on you know, racism in Canada and it's like, oh, I don't see race. And some of the youths also talked about that and people saying, I don't see race. Well, the problem is that if you don't see race, then you cannot find a way to actually solve the issues that arise from um, racism. So one of the things that is important to address is see race and see also racism. See race so that you can clearly see the racist experience that people can experience and actually not just stop there, but also address and deal with some of the strategies to actually solve um, those um, racist experience. So, um, you know, I always tell people I can always, you know, go to my diabetes patient and say, oh, I don't see blood sugar. Um, and then, you know, I just treat everyone regardless of um, their medical condition the same. So, so you cannot do that. And you need to also be uh, intentional in your approach 
and also to continually um, acknowledge your privileged position and and um, your social location in relation to um, you know black people in Canada, indigenous people in Canada who have experienced um, so much racism, uh, both um, present day racism and also historical forms of um, racism in Canada, and and take strategies in terms of tackling that. Um, you know, unconscious bias, recognizing unconscious bias that we may have and um, how those unconscious bias may influence some of, there's a, actually an upward unconscious bias test and I've taken it. Um, and I think it's interesting if people actually take that unconscious bias test and after that reflect on um, you know, some of the unconscious bias you may have that you may think that you do not have. And um, you know, also I think there is this thing that you know, they call white privilege. And it's this chance to having this defensive look of, you know, oh, don't call me racism. I'm not racist. Um, you know, any question that you have. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes it is possible that, you know, we get to that position too, that we need to accept in the ways that we might have been racist in the future so that then we can change um, towards the future. So not towards a defensive, um, but towards ways that we can actually tackle and address um, racism. Um, in Canada. I think there's always ways we can look internally to see if we are um, prejudging or unconscious bias or whatever, but there's always ways we can look internally to see how we can do better. Another thing is, you know, when we think about race and gender in Canada, one thing that I have always talked about is um, we've, I think we've done more work on gender in Canada than we've done on race in Canada. And that is not that I'm trying to put work about gender lower than race. I'm just, it's just a comment because when you look at a lot of the initiatives, for example, we have um, Canada's feminist international policy. We have a CIHR, Canadian Institute of Health Research Institute for Gender. We don't have Canada's anti-racist international policy or anti-racist policy or, well, we do have multiculturalism policy is different from anti-racism policy. And I think we also have to integrate anti-racism more into healthcare professional training. It has to be, anti-racism has to be a part of the standards of practice for healthcare professionals. So that every year, for them to actually be able to demonstrate that, yes, I am a competent healthcare professional, you also have to state that I'm also an anti-racist, I'm also competent in anti-racism. And a lot of healthcare organizations in Canada have not actually done that yet in terms of being able to actually have an anti-racist stance in their standards of practice. And you know, the Toronto Board of Health has identified racism as a public health emergency. Uh, we are beginning to realize the vital need and I mean, equities that re result from um, racism um, in Canada, um, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. But we still have issues related to getting sufficient data related to racism in the collection of race-based data. And also the, the ways in which those race-based data will be used to improve the well-being of Black communities and also Indigenous communities and communities um, that are mainly of people of color in Canada. So I think, you know, those are some of the tangible things that we can do is um, collect um, race-based data, infuse anti-racism into healthcare curriculum, and also care um, standards of practice um, in Canada, and also develop policies that also address anti-racism. Earlier, we mentioned how the landscape of systemic racism and mental health are always shifting. Of course, the pandemic has greatly changed daily life and access to support for all of us. 
but I asked how COVID-19 has impacted mental health in the Black communities. Oh, in several ways. So we know, for example, in Canada, that Black people have poorer, are more likely to die and contact COVID-19 infection. And we know that being Black actually has a stronger influence on whether or not you develop COVID-19 than any other social determinant of health. That has been proven in Montreal and in Toronto. That you know, being Black is more likely to determine whether or not you're going to have COVID-19 than being a refugee or being a low income. It's not because of race, it's because of really the racism and the social determinant of health. So for example, we know that Black people are more likely to be low income, so they're more likely to take public transportation, and because they take public transportation, more exposure. We also know that Black people are more likely to be the direct service providers, providing um, services in long-term care, as opposed to being a manager sitting in an office somewhere where they are more shielded from getting COVID-19 infection. So those structural racism do in fact contribute at the long run to the health status of, um, of Black people in Canada and also you know, to the mental health of um, Black people in Canada. So Black people are poor COVID-19. Black people have um, have a um, higher rate of COVID-19, higher rate of mental health, and it's just a bad combination um, together. And I think there's a report that has just been released about, you know, the higher um, death rate from, you know, other causes that are, for example, mental health and addiction um, in the general population. So I think, you know, the mental health of Black people is specifically very important in this day and age of COVID-19 because of those combined factors. I asked Bukla if the shift to virtual spaces during the pandemic has opened new ways for Black youth to connect with mental health services. Well, I, I think, you know, you know, one of the things about COVID-19 is that it's, it told us a lot of in-person meetings is now that we consider essential before it's now non-essential. And we are more and more relying on, um, you know, um, um, technology. But um, I think those um, technologies have to be continually evaluated in terms of the, the ways in which it's reaching Black communities. A lot of um, knowledge is disseminated, for example, through the internet. Um, I got an email yesterday about someone that wanted to disseminate some information and send it by email. And I'm like, a lot of the population that you're, you know, if you're talking about a lot of you know, low income, if they're low income, black, um, you know, mothers, they may not have access to the to email. And so, so we have to be cognizant of the fact that, yes, these technologies are great, but also they're embedded with inequities that we have to deal with, such as, you know, people don't equally have access to internet. People don't equally have access to computers. So when we're, we're delivering all these interventions, we actually all have to also ensure that we actually provide the tools that we allow people to be able to use it. So access to technology can be an issue. A family may be sharing one device between members or simply not having one altogether. I also asked Noreen, who we heard at the beginning of the story, about virtual access to mental health, and she flagged something else to consider. Uh, I think it's a double-edged sword. It is great that it can reach a lot more people because people from even some uh, isolated places can access supports that maybe they may not usually be. And then in terms of are the spaces going to always be confidential? Probably not. Uh, do we do our best to ensure that they are? Yes, right? And that means it could even be in a car. 
if that's the space that you have, let's normalize that being okay. Because you're merely having a conversation. We have conversations in cars. We have conversations in bathrooms. And parents know this. The bathroom is probably the one place that you have to yourself, if you do even have that space. Because kids will come everywhere because <laughs> they just want to spend time with you. So we find creative ways to ensure that spaces are confidential, right? We can have headphones on and then we can make sure that we have some sort of communication in between that says, if I give you a wave, that means pause. There might be someone else that's coming into the room. So we put in little safety measures like that. Yeah, it's it's got to be tough when you uh, when you think about, especially when it's things like domestic violence, when you could be cohabitating with the abuser um, mm-hmm. or LGBTQ2S youth that are living with people who are phobic. Um, so there's all kinds of hard things to do when you're doing therapy um, from a what's supposed to be your safe space, but may not be because of COVID. Before we close, Bukala wanted to comment on what she has seen in the Black community over the past year. I just like to have about the strengths and the resilience of um, Black communities. Um, so we have, you know, over um, 1.2 million Black people in Canada, and you know, I think what I'm seeing with the COVID-19 pandemic is really a lot of the resilience within the community and the strengths, and in different ways, the community in Edmonton through different groups I'm involved in as Ghana together to actually capitalize on the agency and actually improve their outcomes themselves. So, you know, there was an organization that partnered with Africa Center, for example, to create a food bank that has um, African food stuff in it. Um, There was a Black Equity Rainforest by Rich Foundation, which of course, Edmonton Community Foundation is supported, just to put the word out there, um, to to really address um, the needs of Black youths. The other thing is, in my work with Black youth, I've also seen so much. I was so surprised. Like, I am, you know, I was once there in the past, and, you know, just reflecting and working with them, realizing how strong they were. And I just, this summer, launched a Black youth mentorship program for Black youth, and, and I was so amazed at the strengths of the Black youth within my mentorship program. For example, there was one... Black youth that is only 12 years old and is already in grade 12 and is so brilliant and so smart. So a lot of our youth have so many strengths um, that we can actually capitalize on. And I think, you know, if we can just focus much more on the strengths of our youth, um, that, you know, we, we will have a bright future in Canada. Thanks very much to Noreen Sabanda and Dr. Bukala Salami for sharing their time and insight with us. Noreen is the Executive Director of the Alberta Black Therapist Network and Registered Provincial Psychologist, and Bukala is an Associate Professor at the Faculty of Nursing at the University of Alberta. You heard the Africa Centre mentioned a few times in this story. They have a few initiatives to support Black mental health, including a free counselling program. You can find it at africacenter.ca forward slash counselling, and we'll have a link to it in our show notes. Speaking of show notes, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we've got tons of links to resources for further research, including the research project completed by Bukla and her team. And you'll also find links for how to apply for ECF grants and student awards. Deadlines are approaching fast, so be sure to check out those opportunities now. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, be sure to share it with your friends and family. Share it everywhere. And if you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can visit us on Facebook where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Bonking. 
Until, Until next, next time. time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well endowed.